Well, we are in the early stages of a series that is called, um, it's not called, I called it this, uh, The Good Life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And over the past couple of weeks, we've spent some time looking at and hopefully coming to a better understanding of the context in which Jesus speaks these words here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we talked about a lot last week and even a little bit the week before about how important context is when it comes to uh, understanding what it is that we're seeing or, or reading. And I thought about another example of how important context is uh, this past week uh, on YouTube, and I'm sure you can find it in other places, but on YouTube specifically, there are uh, these spoof trailers, these spoof movie trailers. So they take real movie trailers and then they spoof them. They, they make them say something different or look something different. And so they'll, they'll add different music and they'll pick different clips to change the whole movie around almost completely, uh, or at least the movie trailer. A couple of my favorites, um, for different reasons, uh, are two that they made. One is a spoof of the movie Elf, and then or the movie trailer Elf, and then the other is a spoof of the movie Silence of the Lambs. How many of you have seen both of those movies, or some of those movies? So you kind of know, even if you haven't seen it, you kind of know. And, and so what they did with, with um, Elf is they changed the music, and they picked certain clips to make it into a thriller, like a, a scary movie, and they took Silence of the Lambs and changed the music and picked the different scripts or different uh, scenes to make it into a romantic comedy, which if you have ever seen Silence of the Lambs, you know is very far from a romantic comedy. Uh, Hannibal and Lecter, <laughs> Hannibal Lecter and, and Clarice are, 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 not, um, are not romantically involved. But uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting how, how they've taken these movie trailers, these movies, and made them into movie trailers. And, and all just by manipulating the scenes and adding different music have completely changed what that movie seemingly is about. And it takes the movie completely out of context and instead frames them to say something that they are actually not saying really at all. Yet another reason why context is so important. And if you can do that with a movie... Certainly you can do that with Scripture, which is why it's so important for us to have a context for what it is that we're studying and reading, especially when it comes to, or specifically when it comes to what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount, because it is so important to have a context when it, under, when it comes to understanding it and ultimately applying it to our lives. And having a context is going to serve us particularly well today as we look at the very first teaching, the very first words of Jesus' teaching and what I think is, is the foundational verse of the Sermon on the Mount sets everything else up from here. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 1 and read down through verse 3. So not long section. We've already read part of this, uh, or actually all of this last week, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about the verse 3 in particular. Starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so this is where Jesus begins his sermon. And as we talked about last week, context is important. And I believe that when Jesus said this, said these words here in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5, he's 
commentating on what it is that his disciples had just witnessed at the end of Matthew chapter 4, which is why I spent some time last week talking about that. And just to review a little bit from last week, look again at Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. This is the scene just before Jesus goes up on the mountainside and begins to teach, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus makes this statement, in many ways he's explaining to his disciples what it is that they've just seen and witnessed. All of what he's done in in chapter 4, what they've just witnessed in chapter 4, he's explaining to them what they've just seen, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these people. Now again, remember what the name Jesus, or remember what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. We talked about this a lot last week. He's not just talking about never-ending chocolate fountains and streets of gold and that place you go to after you die. That's not what he's talking about here, even though we hear that word heaven and we immediately think of that. What Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom of heaven is, is, in this context, is referring to the reign of God, the rule of God, the authority of God, the power of God that's present to deliver and save people. And not just to deliver and save people in the next life. I mean, that's what we kind of focus on. But to save and deliver people here and now with the way that we live and how we live our lives. Now think about all those in, in Matthew chapter 4, all those people in Matthew chapter 4 who were sick, who are suffering, who are hurting, and they're all being healed by Jesus. That's an example of salvation and deliverance and the kingdom of heaven coming near. And so that's what's going on right before Jesus makes the statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to, for a moment, just focus in on that word blessed. Blessed, blessed. That word is the Greek word makarios. And it also can be translated as joyful or even to be envied. And so literally it describes a person who is in an enviable position. A state of joy that comes from experiencing and participating in God's work of deliverance and salvation. A work that is happening in us and also through us. And here in Matthew chapter 4, the power of God is, is, is happening, is, is making a real difference in the lives of these people. And it's left joy and blessedness in its wake. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it's not just some statement that he's making in a vacuum that you can put on a bumper sticker or you can put on your mirror you know, at your home. He's commenting on what's just happened, that the kingdom of heaven has come near to those who are poor in spirit. It's come near to those who are less than, who are disenfranchised, who who don't have what it takes in and of themselves to make their lives better. And there's so much more that's happening in this moment than just the healing of these people's bodies. In fact, to really appreciate the joy that these people were experiencing, I think it's helpful to, to kind of talk about some of the ramifications of what Jesus has just done for them. You see, when someone was chronically ill and sick in that culture, there was always a significant possibility that not only was their their body hurting, but their spirit was hurting, that their spirit would be broken as well. And certainly that's even common in our day and age, right? You think about some of you who have dealt with 
chronic illness or maybe children or parents who have dealt with chronic illness or a sibling or whatever it may be. And it's not just your, your body that is hurting, but your spirit can be worn down and broken as well. And so on, on top of, in, in Jesus' day that was particularly true, and on top of just dealing with the adversity of the illness itself, people had to deal with the ripple effects of the consequences of the illness in a very physical and, and tangible way. For instance, there were economic consequences. There was no wel- welfare plan or insurance programs for those who were sick or ill. If you couldn't work due to illness, then you were in real trouble financially. And most everyone was living day to day under the heavy taxation of the Roman Empire. And so you're just trying to figure out life in general, much less when you're sick and you're chronically ill. But if you are chronically ill, then it wouldn't take long for you to kind of get backed up and behind the pace where, where you couldn't catch up. You couldn't make ends meet. On top of that, there were social consequences. For one, your primary option for survival if you were chronically ill and couldn't work was to beg. And begging obviously is not exactly looked upon in in high regard, right? Even today it's not looked upon in high regard, but especially back then. And so, you know, if if you couldn't work and you had to resort to begging, not only were you in a real position financially where you were struggling, but then you're also kind of in a, in a real position socially where you're struggling. And even more than that, even more than people looking down on you and, 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 and not wanting to be around you and withdrawing from you, but they actually isolated those who were sick chronically in that culture. And they did it for a couple of reasons. One, of course, was to try and mitigate the, the, the symptoms of the disease or the spread of the disease if it was a communicable disease. But a deeper reason for isolating the sick was for spiritual reasons. Because back then, many thought that if you were sick, and there's still some that think this way a little bit today. We, 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 we frame it in a little bit different mindset. But if, if, if you were sick or, or diseased or suffering back then, that person must be under a punishment from God for something that they did or something that was you know, done by their parents. That was the mindset back then. And still, even today, we kind of think, well, what did I do wrong that I'm having to go through this. But you look back and how they viewed it, and for instance, in a place like Matt, or John chapter 9, uh, the disciples see a blind man. This is not up on the screen, but the disciples see a blind man, and, and they ask Jesus, they say, Rabbi, who sinned? That's, that's their first thought. Not, how do we make him well, or, you know, what's going on? Like, who sinned? This man or his parents, because that was the mindset, that you were under punishment from God because of something that you did. So put this all together. When you're chronically ill or sick in that culture, not only were you having to deal with the perpetual perpetual suffering of the illness itself, but you were also having to deal with being broke, along with being isolated and ostracized. And then at the heart of it all, you're made to believe that this was a punishment from God and that he turned his back on you in some way. When you were sick in that culture, the chances were good that not only was your body or your mind broken, but that your spirit was broken as well. And so you read a verse like Proverbs chapter 18, verse 14. The human spirit can endure in sickness, but a crushed spirit... Who can bear? And, and some of you have, have lived that out or maybe are living that out right now. And yet Psalm 34, 18 says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed 
in spirit. And in many ways, that's what's going on at the end of Matthew chapter 4 and at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus shows up and declares that the kingdom of heaven has come near and he starts healing people, he didn't just free them from their suffering and their illness. He also set in motion the ability for them to be able to return to society again. For them to no longer be ostracized and isolated, for them to be in relationships, for them to have the opportunity to work again and not have to grapple with the shame of begging. And on top of that, Jesus healing them may also have corrected some of the assumptions that they had about God distancing himself from them. The point is, Jesus did so much more than just bring healing to their bodies or their minds. He brought healing on a number of levels in their lives. And so can you imagine the level of blessedness and joy that these people are experiencing? I mean, when he says blessed, they are experiencing that blessedness in very real and tangible ways. And that's what Jesus, I think, in many ways wants us to see and realize, not only in what he says, but in what he does. That the kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit, and the poor in spirit are abundantly joy and blessed because of the kingdom of heaven belonging to them. The reign of God, the rule of God, the power of God is breaking in and being displayed in people's lives. And the kingdom of heaven has more than enough power, not only to heal their broken bodies, but more importantly, to heal their broken spirits. And what's so incredible about what Jesus has done and said here is not just the fact that these are miraculous healings, but rather it's what the miraculous healings say to us and reveal to us about his nature and his, and his kingdom and, and, and how he operates and, and how he works and how he, how he treats us. Many of you have heard the phrase, as we've used it, and we've used it as if it is scripture a lot of times, God helps those who help themselves, right? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have actually used that phrase or quoted that phrase even as though it is scripture? And yet what Jesus does and says makes it clear that God has come to help those who cannot help themselves. Now I get there's some of you that are thinking, well, yeah, don't we have a responsibility? Yes, we do. And there's verses in the Bible that talk about us working and, and doing what we can, and I get that. But so much of what Jesus is speaking to here and doing here is reminding us that God has come to help a whole of creation who in the end cannot help themselves in the real ways that we need to be helped. God has come to help those who are broken beyond their ability and resources to repair their own lives. And I think this has implications for us in a couple of different ways. First, it has, this first thing in your notes, it has implications for us as receivers of the kingdom. Like in how we receive what God is trying to do in us and through us. As I said earlier in the ancient world, many thought that if someone was sick or diseased or suffering, then they must be under a punishment from God for something that they did. And what, yet when Jesus comes on the scene and declares that the kingdom of heaven has come near, the first people he goes to are not the religious elites, not the ones who seemingly have it all together. The first people that the kingdom of heaven and the power of God come, comes near to are those who most everybody else thought God had distanced himself from. Those who most everybody else thought were believed to be unrighteous and sinful and not worthy of anything close to the grace and the kingdom of heaven and the power of God. And then Jesus comes along and says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. 
belongs to those who are spiritually bankrupt, belongs to those who are spiritually broken. God isn't distancing himself from them. In fact, he's coming near to them. Now, here's something I think is important for us to understand. When Jesus says, <coughs> excuse me, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he isn't talking about something that we have to do. Sometimes when we read this verse, we think, I've got to be poor in spirit, right? If Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, then that means I need to be poor in spirit so that I will be blessed, and then I will receive the kingdom of heaven. That, that, that it's some kind of you know, code that we've got to punch in so that we can get in the door, right? That I'm poor in spirit, okay, that's like, no, no, this, no. And, and now I can get in the door. But Jesus doesn't say that he blesses the poor in spirit. He says that the poor in spirit are blessed. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're blessed because they have access to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the reason they are blessed is not because they're poor in spirit. The reason they are blessed is because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It belongs to them. Because here's the reality. You and I don't have to do anything to become poor in spirit. You just have to be breathing. You are already poor in in spirit. Each, each and every one of us is already poor in spirit, whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not. Each and every one of us is spiritually bankrupt. Each and every one of us has a spiritual need, and we don't have enough righteousness within us to meet that need, to satisfy that need. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one, just to make sure you think that you might be on the outskirts and, and, and maybe you would fit the bill. Not even one. And he goes on to say in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us falls short of the standard that God has for our lives. And what Jesus is doing in the midst of these healings is delivering a message <coughs> that speaks loud and clear to everyone in our culture and hopefully even to us today. He heals the very people that supposedly distance himself, or God had supposedly distanced himself from. The very people who everyone believed were spiritually bankrupt, not deserving of any of this stuff, not just because he's compassionate, but also to send a message that the kingdom is God, of God, the kingdom of heaven, is for those who don't measure up. In essence, he's making it clear from the very beginning of his ministry, from the very beginning of his message, that the kingdom of God is all about grace. It's all about grace. And I think this is so critical for us to understand as we approach these verses, because so often it's easy to read the Sermon on the Mount as these requirements that we got to keep in order for us to, you know, someday at the end of, of, of our journey, as we kind of finish things up, that hopefully then we'll receive the blessedness that God desires for, to give us. And so if I live out the Beatitudes and I live out everything that Jesus says, hopefully at the end of my journey, then I'll find some blessedness and God will come near to me. In other words, if we live it out, then at the end we'll find grace. But the truth is that the Sermon on the Mount begins with God coming near to us first in our spiritual brokenness, first in our spiritual bankruptcy. He doesn't wait for us to get it all together before he comes to us. And he's like, well, yeah, you, you've got enough of the Beatitudes down 
and, and, and you've got enough of, you know, you're well into chap, the end of chapter 6, so I feel like, you know, you, you've, get, you've got it mostly together. So now I'll come to you and, and give you some of my grace, because you're never going to fully measure up, but I'll, 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 you know, you've got to get somewhere first, right? No, he begins the whole sermon on the grounds of grace. In his goodness, he comes near to us in the midst of our spiritual brokenness to help us get it all together because the truth is we can't get it all together without him. You can't live out the Sermon on the Mount fully without him. And so we live it out from the place of grace, not to get grace because we've lived it out. And I think this is so important for us to remember because as we walk through this series, there are going to be plenty of times where we are going to be painfully reminded of just how much we don't have it together. And if you're not reminded of how much you don't have it together, then you're further back than the rest of us who realize that we don't have it together. Because if you don't read these words and realize how woefully short you come up, then then maybe we need to have another discussion sometime. Because none of us measure up. that none of us are as righteous as we think we are. And yet every time we feel that, if you get to that place, I hope you remember Jesus' opening line. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you realize that you don't measure up because then you are starting to recognize what the kingdom of heaven is all about. The saving and delivering power of God is for the spiritually broken and bankrupt. And when we're convicted of our brokenness and our bankruptcy. That's not a reason to run away from God. In fact, that's actually, you're in the best position to draw near to God when you recognize your brokenness because he's already drawn near to you. And that's some of what it means that this teaching of Jesus has implications for us as receivers of the kingdom. But secondly, it also has uh, implications for us as conduits of the kingdom as givers of the kingdom. Because not only are we receivers, but as God transforms our lives, we become conduits of his saving and delivering power that can make a difference in the lives of others. The truth is we're all broken beyond our own resources to repair our lives. Now we think we're a lot better than we are in a lot of different ways, but each and every one of us are broken beyond our own capacity to repair our own lives. But we're also surrounded by people who are broken beyond their capacity to repair their own lives. And this is why everybody needs to hear the message of Jesus. We're all in a spiritual condition that we cannot fix by ourselves. We need him to do it for us and with us. But remember, (coughs) the saving and delivering power of God isn't just the power to save our souls. It also has power to impact our lives here and now, every aspect of our lives. And so people's relationships matter. People's marriages matter. People's families matter. People's jobs and vocations matter. People growing into their God-given potential matters. And you and I, not only are we broken, but we are surrounded by people who are broken in all of those various ways and more. And this is why Jesus has so much to say to his disciples about showing grace and mercy to those who cannot help themselves. It's not about God helps those who helps themselves. He wants his disciples to see God helps those who cannot help themselves. Because as his followers, we are called not just to be receivers of grace, but to be conduits of grace, givers of grace. And we follow a God who takes initiative to help those who cannot help themselves. Well, as we close today, I, I, 
I don't know where you are spiritually, those who are with us, those who are watching online. I, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, but um, nor do I know how Jesus' words are hitting you this morning. But I do want to give you, just out of this kind of idea, I want to give you three different kind of groups of people that maybe you fit into. You know, every, every time we approach God's word, hopefully we try to find where we are in relation to it. And I want to just give you three different groups of people that hopefully maybe you fit into one of those. Uh, or maybe you've got it all together and you don't need to hear the rest of this sermon and you're good to go. But maybe you, you, you fit into one of these groups in regard to this message from Jesus. First, there's some that need to agree with the tough news of what Jesus says. There's some of us who need to agree with the tough and sobering news of what Jesus says. We need to agree that we are spiritually broken. And I don't just mean in a way that's like, yeah, you know, I'm in church and so I know the right things to say. No, we need to truly acknowledge our brokenness, that we are beyond our own capacity and resources to restore ourselves. We need to agree that we're not good enough. And we'll never be able to do enough to justify ourselves before God. I saw a survey not too long ago that was done of a whole bunch of high school students. And and they asked them a question about how well they believed they got along with their peers. So how well do you get along with those who are your age and your friends around you? 60% of the students surveyed believed, again, let me say that again, 60% of the students surveyed believed that they were in the top 10% of how well they got along with their peers, okay? 25% of the students believed that they were in the top 1% of how well they got along with their peers. Now, I do like math, but I am not a stats expert, expert but I'm pretty sure you can't fit 60 into, 60% into 10%, and you definitely can't fit 25% into 1%, Right? But the point is the majority of students consider themselves way above average when it comes to how well they got along with their peers. Now, you might think, okay, students are young. Maybe they have an inflated sense of, of self more than what most other people do. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree, although I don't want to bash you know, young people um, because I'm, I'm still kind of young in, in, in many ways. Uh, but this survey was done also with professors as well. And so you think maybe so- professors a little bit older— have a better sense of of self-awareness, but when they did this same survey, 63% said that they were above average when it came to how well they got along with their peers. So even if you say above average, what's that above 50%? You still can't fit 63 into 50. Um, And 25% of college professors rated themselves as truly exceptional in how they got along with their peers, pretty much the same percentage as the students. So what's the point? Well, one researcher summed it up this way. I I love this. The average person believes they're a better person than the average person. Let me say that again. The average person believes they're a better person than the average person. Psychologists have a term for this. They call it illusory superiority. It's where we live with this illusion where we tend to inflate our positive qualities and our positive abilities in comparison to other people. And on the flip side, we tend to downplay our negative abilities and our negative qualities. And we often do the same when it comes to evaluating our lives spiritually and our level of righteousness. But in comparison to Jesus, 
the Bible never says compare yourself to others. In fact, it, it persuades us not to do that, commands us not to do that. You know who the Bible says to compare yourself with? Jesus. And when you compare yourself with Jesus, we're all broke. And the Sermon on the, on the Mount, in, in, in very specific ways, is going to reveal that, hopefully in very visceral ways. <coughs> because there is a righteousness <coughs> so deep and so real and so true that it cannot be achieved on our own, but it ultimately must be received through Jesus. Everyone is poor in spirit. And yet many of us live under the illusion that we're not broken. All of us have this little voice inside of our heads that says, oh, you're fine. You're fine. I mean, you're not perfect, but you're better than that guy, better than that girl. But we're not fine. We don't have it all together. And I hope, don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not a call to beat yourself up, okay? That's not at all what Jesus is trying to do. Not at all what I am trying to do. But the reality is that we are all broken. And here's the deal. In the end, as long as we live under the illusion that we're fine, that we aren't broken, we're actually missing out on the greatest news of all, that God has come near to us in our brokenness. That Jesus died for us in our brokenness to make us whole in him. Which leads me to a second group of people. Some need to believe the good news of what Jesus says. Whereas some need to agree with the tough news, some of you, some of us, need to truly believe the good news of what Jesus says. Because there are some that are all too aware of their broken condition. And that they don't have what it takes. They don't have the resources in and of themselves to overcome. But maybe they've truly, they've yet to truly hold on and grasp the truly good news of why Jesus has come. That the availability of the power of God, the deliverance of God, the resources of God have come near to us. The kingdom of heaven has come near So that you can find grace, you can find deliverance, you can find salvation, that he's come for us. Several years ago, author and noted atheist Christopher Hitchens was diagnosed with cancer and he's since passed away. Uh, But after his diagnosis, before he passed, he wrote an article about his struggle with cancer. And I want to read you what he wrote. He said, I'm badly oppressed by a knowing sense of waste. I had real plans for my next decade and felt I'd worked hard enough to earn it. Will I really not live to see my children married? I sometimes wish I were suffering in a good cause or risking my life for the good of others instead of just being a gravely endangered patient. Allow me to inform you, though, that when you sit in a room with a set of other finalists and kindly people bring you a huge transparent bag of poison, also known as chemo, to plant in your arm, and you either read or don't read a book while the venom sac gradually empties into your system, you feel swamped with passivity and impotence, dissolving into powerlessness like a lump of sugar in water. Those words are not meant to be encouraging, so I I don't know if you took them that way or not. But on one level, Hitchens was incredibly in touch with his brokenness and his powerlessness, that he was powerless in the face of that disease. The problem is he didn't believe the good news. He didn't believe the good news that is found in Jesus Christ. And I know people 
who do believe the good news, and you do too, in the midst of their struggle and in the midst of their suffering, cancer and other diseases, whatever it may be, and they're writing a far different story because of the power present in their lives, even in the midst of their powerlessness. Like I said, context is so important. Some people very much agree with the tough news of their brokenness, and they know it all too well, but they truly need to believe the good news of what Jesus says as well. And then finally, the last thing, some need to hear the whole news of what Jesus says. And this is where it comes to us being conduits and sharers of the grace and not just receivers. Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That's why we as receivers of God's kingdom are called to be conduits of God's kingdom and to share the message of the saving and delivering power of Jesus Christ. You know, I read a story about a guy who was describing his life and Growing up, he didn't know very much about Jesus. He was a retired merchant marine. He sailed around the world and did a lot of stuff. He also had a really, really hard life. Until one day, someone shared the message of Jesus Christ with him, and he believed that message. And at the age of 79, 79, he gave his life to Jesus Christ and was baptized. And I love what he said in regard to his decision to give his life to Christ. He said, I feel like I've won the lottery. But the truth is he hadn't won the lottery. What what was happening in that man's life was he was tasting for the first time of the life that can truly be found in Jesus Christ and how truly blessed it is.